This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. We are in a really fascinating series right now called For the Love of Therapy. We really wanted to parse this particular series out, focusing on various layers and levels of psychiatry and counseling and therapy and really digging deep. There will not be a listener who cannot relate to this. Obviously, we pay attention, we see what's happening on social media. And this has to do with our conversation today in the context of like mental wellness and therapy. I can speak for myself and tell you that almost every ad I get on social media suggests that I am being targeted by the beauty and wellness industry. Genuinely, like, you know how the algorithm works. Like, let's say you you look at an ad for three seconds about a shampoo that gives volume to your hair. And suddenly, every other ad you get is about hair restoration, right? We know that social media ads are driven by our viewing habits. But all of a sudden, we are just inundated with these messages that we should be worried about our hairline, certainly our wrinkles, the skin around our necks, our elbows. Like I've got an ad that comes up in my feed about my elbow skin. Like, I, I can't, guys. It's just a lot. This pressure, this creating a problem for me that I didn't even know I had or exploiting the ones that they know I don't feel great about, right? And that all these quick fixes, like this is the cure. This is the solution. This is the way to get your life improved. This is the answer, which is truly, truly never, ever true. And so... What we're going to learn today from our guest is a different idea about self-care. She calls it real self-care. And it's not focused on superficial beauty, but rather genuine well-being. And she's going to walk us through it today, what that actually looks like, how we can discern the difference. You guys, we have an incredible guest. We've got Dr. Pooja Lakshman. She is a renowned psychiatrist. She's an advocate for women who are certainly targeted by these industries. And she emphasizes that self-care comprises so much more than these 
just external solutions. In her research, Dr. Lakshman illustrates that self-care is really kind of uplinks to four major chambers, which we talk about, which are rarely linked together with this idea of self-care, but they are deep and they are true and they have actual effect on the way that we feel and live and are moving through the world. True wellness, true wellness, right? Not just less wrinkled skin around my eyes. She points out, rightly so, that self-care isn't always like glamorous. It's not always this condescending suggestion of just paint your nails, right? It it might look like canceling plans when you're overwhelmed. That's self-care. It might look like saying no to a request when you're overloaded. That is self-care. We really dive into this, that this is really a necessity to wellness. Her work is incredible. It's a powerful reminder that all of this comes from within. This is an inside job. This is interior work, not simply outsourced to external solutions. And I loved this conversation and I love her. She's so engaging and lively. I really appreciated her walking through her own kind of personal reckoning with this in her own life and what that looked like before and after incredibly honest and candid in a way that I'm drawn to and I appreciate it. And so I think you're going to love her certainly you're going to love her insight into all this. And of course, she's been everywhere talking about this. She writes for the New York Times. She's founded a community called Gemma, which we discuss. Her first book is out in the world called Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included, which I love. And so I'm so pleased to welcome to the show Austin-based the wise and the wonderful Dr. Pooja Lakshman. I am delighted to have you on the show, Dr. Lakshman. I am so interested in your work. I am so moved by your point of view and the the type of the specific sort of brand of liberation that you are bringing to women particularly right now is just entirely in my wheelhouse. So thank you so much for your time today. It is such a pleasure to be here, Jen. I'm so excited for this conversation. So, all right, let's start here. Glad we're having this conversation today. I am 49. And so I turned 50 next summer and a lot of my listening community is about the same age. I am kind of my own target demographic. So this is kind of where we're at in our stage of life. And so, I mean, nobody has to tell us, me, any of us about the like, be young, be fit, be well messaging. Look, I am targeted for that message every single day ad nauseum. And so I know like in the olden days when we were sort of coming of age, that's something that we saw, I guess, on television and and probably more specifically to my experience, magazines. That was, you know, back when we wore we read magazines and that's where those right. images and those the narratives Cosmo came from. and the glamour and mm-hmm. totally teen vogue, all of it. Like it started young. So it's not as if we've ever been free of of those ideals but now 
Wow. Now, the way that this narrative is coming at us like a torrent via obviously like social media primarily is inescapable and new, unprecedented, really unprecedented, the way that we are now targeted for kind of this whole idea. So I'd love to hear you talk about kind of the core philosophy, the the main thesis, if you will, behind your book called Real Self-Care. Hello. I mean, I just want to wave my hanky. Yes. Real self-care. Yes. Keep screaming it. So not only the main crux of your book, but how it differs from the mainstream understanding of the term. Yes. Well, first I'll say I so agree with everything that you're talking about. I'll also caveat that I'm kind of a tangential person. So apologies if I go in circles, but we will get there. We will get there. there. And so I want to just quickly say, you know, I think that in terms of social media and like the way that it's become so insidious is because we have these little second brains, our phones that are constantly with us. So it like lives inside our brain in a completely different way. And the place that you go to talk to your friends on Instagram DM is also the same place where you're targeted for these ads, right? So it's just, it's all, it's like in the air we breathe in a way that was very different than even 10 years ago, I think. To kind of encapsulate the whole message of real self-care the sub-subtitle of the book is Crystals, Cleanses, and Bubble Baths, not included. And hopefully nobody that's listening is going to come at me about their crystals. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Right. Everybody calm down. Everyone calm yes. down. <laughs> yes. I'm not trying to like pull away your, you know, your crystals that you're... I have actually have a crystal on my bookshelf. But we're trying to get to like a deeper layer. And so the sound bite is sort of like you can't meditate your way out of a 40-hour work week without childcare. Like we have to talk about the systems, the social structures that have gotten us to this place where the expectation for a woman, a mom, to feel better is, is this very like condescending, well, just go to a yoga class, just pour your bubble bath and a glass of wine and like they're there you'll feel better. And I find that to be condescending at best, manipulative at worst. And so, you know, I've had my own kind of life experience going very, very deep down the rabbit hole of wellness and coming out the other side being like, we're talking about it wrong. Like we've simplified it too much. And so in real self-care, I distinguish between faux self-care versus real self-care. And faux self-care is it's like the bubble baths, it's the juice cleanse, it's the essential oil. It's it's something you buy or it's something that you do. And it's external, right? You look outside of you to do something. You could also call it a tool. Like it's like a it's a very specific activity or a product that you're using to fix yourself or to change something. I describe the concept of hedonic well-being in the book hedonic well-being, which faux self-care is based off of. Hedonic well-being is the theory of well-being that says that well-being means a lack of suffering or the feeling of pleasure. So you're running towards either pleasure, you know, the 600 calorie Starbucks drink that they're calling a latte, but is actually a milkshake, right? That's, that's hedonic well-being. It's this like kind of 
this escape. And I'm not saying it's bad because we all need that once in a while, for sure. But it doesn't fix the deeper issues. And, and I think our expectations of it are wrong. Again, not our fault because we're sold this and we're fed this and it's the, in the air we breathe. But we're expecting these external things to fix our lives and to make ourselves feel better. But they leave us feeling short. And they also make us feel like it's our fault. One of the things I see in my practice all the time is the woman who comes in, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I take care of women who are struggling with like depression, anxiety, ADHD. So often like the patient who comes in and she's like, you know, Dr. Lakshman, I'm stressed out. I'm burnt out. I'm not eating well. And I feel like it's my fault because I have this meditation app that I know I'm supposed to be using. But the last thing I want to do at the end of the day is meditate. Like all I can bring myself to do is doom scroll. So, so then it makes it my fault, right? I'm the problem when in fact, actually it's the entire system that is working against us. Like we live in a country that still doesn't have federally mandated paid parental leave. Like it's impossible to get your kid off of a wait list for daycare, right? Let alone like how much we pay childcare workers, right? Like this is all kind of in the system. It's not, the problem isn't that you aren't using your meditation app. So my solution to this is real self-care, which has four principles, boundaries, compassion, values, and power. Sounds really simple, I know, but it's hard. (laughs) It's the caveat, like all things in life. The shorthand, if you want the shorthand, is sort of like do less things. Hmm. Be nice to yourself. Prioritize the things that really matter to you. Not to your mom, not to your best friend, but to you. Mm-hmm. And then either give back or ask for help. Mm. And again, those things are like very easy to say on a podcast or to write in a book. And I, and that's why we're talking about for the love of therapy, right? Because it actually is quite hard to implement these things in your life. But my real self-care framework is that these are principles. They're not tools. They're internal processes that you have to go through. And then you figure out what your tools are. And so for your best friend, it might be like her tool might be like if she does a daily Peloton ride, she is so much better. And that's her tool. But that's not going to be the same tool for you. For you, it might be, okay, this week, I really need to sit down and do my taxes. Like that is my real self-care this week because I've been avoiding it and I've been procrastinating, right? Or the next week, it might be like, yeah, I really do need a girl's weekend, for X, Y, Z reason. And I'm going to show up and I'm going to be present. I'm not going to be performative, right? So it's this real self-care is, it's an internal process. It brings you closer to yourself. It's a verb. It's not a noun. And, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm on my soapbox, but I'll say the one last thing is like, you were talking, Jen, about being 50 next year and kind of this like season of life that you're in. And I just think, It's so important to recognize that as you move through different transitions in life, your self-care is going to change. Like the way that we see it right now in social media is as if there's one external answer and that fixes it. But the reality is you have to go through this, the boundaries, the compassion, the values, the power. I mean, I go through it every six months. I feel like you probably do too, based on everything that you've talked about, especially if you're somebody who's psychologically minded and you know curious like you're just as you grow as things change as you evolve 
it should change, right? Like that's actually the right thing to happen. And I think that especially in midlife for women, I think it's like an especially powerful, fruitful time where you can like really look at what's important to me and and make different choices, which I know you have done (laughs) quite Mm -hmm. a bit of. And that's, Mm -hmm. again, that's why the power, that's why power is the last principle because this really is, this is about power. And the the concept of self-care as power and self-preservation comes from Black queer thinkers like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks back in the 1950s and 1960s in the civil rights movement. So that's that's obviously not an accident. Hmm. So I know that's a lot. Uh, There's so much there. Like it's just so much there, like all at once. And it's, it's so familiar what you're saying. If we were going to start parse some of it out, just pulling a thread out and looking at it a little closer, are there some general rules of thumb? Because frankly, the way that we are targeted for external self-care, and that's a really good distinction between an internal process and something outside we have to reach for. So much of the packaging of those products or practices or what sounds right. It sounds like this is a way to care for yourself. And you are so right. So many of those just come up empty because they don't get to the root of the thing. And so is there a useful rule of thumb to distinguish between, because as you said, some some things are, Peloton may be somebody's right, right. self-care practice right. that may genuinely be something that serves them. How do we distinguish between self-care practices that truly nurture our well-being and those that are just marketed as self-care by an industry looking to capitalize? Kind of a broad question and maybe challenging to answer. Yes. So a couple thoughts. And I will say that with this whole framework, because of my own like wellness history, I'm always, and I know that you talk about this too, I'm hesitant to give like rules because the whole concept is that, right, it's internal. But I think there's a framework here that you can sort of, right, think about. So one is that I think when it feels really urgent, like when it feels like this is the thing, this is the thing I have to have, I have to do. And and you have like kind of like rose-tinted glasses, let's say. Like this is going to be the thing that fixes my life. As a tangent, I know you've talked about kind of Melanie Beattie's work, like codependent no more, right? I mean, we can do this with relationships too, right? Like with a marriage or we can do it with work. I mean, I'm guilty of this as a workaholic. Like there's a way where you can kind of be like, oh, well, when I achieve this next thing, then everything is going to be fixed, right? So it shows up in different places. But if you notice yourself kind of being like, oh my God, I have to buy this product right now. Oh, I have to do this thing right now. And there's like this urgency. That's a little, you know, it doesn't mean that it's wrong, right? We're, it's all about being curious. It's all about like taking a step back and being like, oh, well, okay, let me ask myself, what am I expecting to get from this? How am I approaching it? Am I coming to it with a sense of desperation? Or am I coming to it with like, oh, this is a tool. This is like one tool, you know? And and there's also other tools. There's, you know, just depending on what it is, there's also like therapy, there's medication, there's support groups, there's, right. And okay, this is another thing that I can add to my arsenal or toolbox, but it's not going to be the savior, right? The other thing that I would say is how you feel afterwards. Does it come with guilt, right? 
either in that you're not doing enough of it, right? Right? Like guilt in this in the sense of you're not doing enough of it. You haven't, you know, checked it off the list for the day. That means that you need to work on how you're approaching it, or maybe you haven't like fully worked through the principles, or like a constant guilt that you're not getting to it. Right? Because then that means you haven't actually set the boundaries to make the space to do the thing. So one of the examples I like to use is, is like so much of the, as I'm talking through it, is, is really about like how you come to the activity or how you come to the product or the relationship or whatever it is. Because you could imagine somebody that goes to a yoga class and spends the whole time in yoga worried that like you don't have the right Lululemon leggings and maybe like you can't do crow pose anymore. And like last year you could, not that I have any experience with this, right? (laughs) But Uh you could imagine somebody who's like actually really there and like present and like, you know, working on their breath and like feeling connected to their body. Those are two very different experiences of yoga. So again, it's it's not about like any one thing being wrong. It's really about how you're showing up for it and how you're using those principles to like actually have it be part of your life and and really let it nourish you. That's so good. The exact same practice can have a different effect on two different people depending on how we show up for it and how we locate it in the process of being well and of genuine self-care. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose and sneezing. So get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O-allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. I'd like to go back a handful of steps before I I really want to ask you about some of your, some of the four principles but how, I wonder if you could just share, and I've already told my listeners, I high leveled for them, you and your very incredible credentials. And can you talk a little bit about how you came to this work? Why this matters to you? Why is this your field? What brought you here? And because now you've really like nestled down into a, a wonderful kind of niche space wellness and self-care is so broad and, you know, psychiatry, it's all just huge. And so the fact that this is your like really specific and pointed messaging, can you kind of get us to how you got here? Yes, absolutely. I feel like in any type of service role, we always teach what we need to know, right? Like we come to it because we needed it. (laughs) And then we want others to have that same experience. So that is very much true for me. So I grew up in a pretty conservative South Asian family. I was raised Hindu. 
My parents are immigrants from India. My dad, he's now retired. He was a physician. And so it was really sort of this like, okay, you're a girl, you're Indian, you know, you do the things that you're supposed to do. You know, I I was very much the good girl. I was valedictorian in my class. I went to an Ivy League college. I got into medical school. I got married. And then in my late 20s, I was in my second year of psychiatry residency training and I had checked all the boxes. You know, I'd done all the things I was supposed to. And I said to myself, okay, well, now I'm allowed to be happy. Like now let me figure out how to be happy. Wow. (laughs) And as we know, you know, that never works out as planned. Hmm. And I went through a whole thing. And I mean, I think this is why I was so excited to come on your show, Jen, just kind of knowing your story over the past few years. I mean, I blew up my life. I I blew up my marriage. I moved into a wellness commune in San Francisco that was focused on spirituality and meditation and and female sexuality. You know, all my friends were like, oh my gosh, what is happening to Pooja? And I left my training and I did that for two years. Like I really went deep down the rabbit hole of like the spiritual practice and alternative medicine and because I really believed it. Like I thought like this is my savior. And and one of the things that was informing me at the time was I was really heartbroken about medicine, like modern mainstream medicine and psychiatry because I had this very naive view that if I became a doctor that I would be able to totally, you know, fix all my patients' problems, which, you know, sure. Of course, that's not true, but I realized like, oh, somebody comes in and they're unhoused. I can give them Zoloft, but like I can't get them housing. Or I have a patient who is being discriminated against at work because she's pregnant and loses her job. We can do therapy, but like I can't get her job back. And, and you know, I was like really angry about that. So it was sort of like, okay, well, let me just like destroy everything. So I spent two years with this group. And by the end of it, I realized there's just as many contradictions and hypocrisies in alternative medicine as there are in mainstream medicine, right? And you can't, there is no external solution. Like you can't run away from your problems. You can't just like pick up and find a new life and then be like, okay, things are great. Like, so I came back, I I turned 30 in my childhood bedroom. Like it was very depressing. There was like American Girl dolls on the (laughs) shelf. (laughs) And I was really depressed and I, I started intensive therapy myself. And I've been in therapy now for like seven years. My therapist is is retiring at the end of this year, and you know went on medication. And, right? Yes. By the way. Yes. Right. That, yes. We can talk about that. <laughs> and so this is when I started really, and when I came back to medicine, which was me like really admitting failure. You know, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I came back a different person. Like I came back knowing I wasn't going to lose myself. And then, you know, a couple of years later is when I started seeing on social media, like this wellness boom that was happening. And and at that time I was, you know, had graduated residency in 2016. I just started on the faculty at George Washington University and I was feeling burnt out again, as happens. And I had just started posting on Instagram because I just, I felt like there wasn't a space for me in the ivory tower to actually speak what I wanted to. So I started going out on Instagram and I realized, oh my gosh, like what is going on with like the wellness products? Like it's just, it was really concerning to me. And so that's where real self-care was born. Really in me realizing as a psychiatrist, I have this unique perspective of knowing why it's not working. And I also have like compassion for the folks who 
are heartbroken, right? Because it's not, it doesn't mean that you are stupid. It's so easy to believe that the solution is outside of yourself. Hmm. I relate so much. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. Thank you for talking about your personal experience there. I, I, I find with leaders that I really trust when it comes to these like issues of the like heart and soul and mind and identity, I tend to trust leaders who have kind of suffered their way to it mm-hmm. and yep. had their yep. own <laughs> life experiences that contributed to their wider understanding of wellness and what that really means. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. I want to go back to your four, you said, okay, if we're just going to drop down little umbrellas over like actual self-care, so boundaries, compassion, what was the third one? Values. Values and power. And power. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'd love to hear you talk about when people think about self-care, virtually no one, their first connection is to think boundaries. And so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that one, because even just going back to something you said earlier, even when you said a minute ago, sometimes self-care means I need to do my taxes today. I felt that in my bones because (laughs) what I immediately thought of was like that feeling when you have finished something that has been a gremlin on your shoulder, you've put it off, you've procrastinated, is stealing your peace. And so it is genuinely true. That in that case, doing the damn taxes is self-care. It just releases you from that anxiety. So I feel like boundaries are the same thing. Maybe not something we would typically put under the silo of self-care. And yet I cannot think of anything more true. So can you just, I mean, it's such a mass concept. So pick however you want. But I'd love to hear you parse out a little bit more about boundaries as this idea of nurture. Yes. So my take on boundaries is a little bit different because I think like every therapist right now on Instagram, you know, is talking about boundaries. It's everywhere. And and that's because it's so important. And that's why it's the first principle of real self-care. It's like, it's the backbone of everything. It's also really, really hard, especially as a woman, because we've just been conditioned to give and give and give. My take on boundaries, it comes from actually when I was first finishing residency in 2016, I had just gotten my dream job on the faculty in our women's mental health clinic. My mentor took me out for lunch on my first day. And she was like, Pooja, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. You don't have to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail, listen to what they want, think about it, and then respond. And And that was like, shocking to me because I had just been through med school and residency. And those days you had like the beepers, the pagers, right? And you have this like PTSD response. And I was like, oh Uh my gosh, that was an aha. So it's like the boundary is the pause. It's the pause. And then you decide yes, no, or negotiate. Because there is always a price to know. There's always a price to know. It's either emotional drama that will come up. It's financial calculus, right? When If you say no to your boss, like you might lose your job, right? Or you might not be up for that next promotion. So that's real. So the no isn't always accessible, but the pause is always accessible. And then you can think, you can think through. So in that example, for me, it was like, 
Sometimes it's the front desk and they just have paperwork for me to sign and I can say, I'll come around at the end of the day. But if it's a patient who I know if she misses a day of her Adderall, like she literally might get into a car accident. Okay, I'm going to put that refill in, right? And so you decide. And let's say that the no isn't accessible. Then what you can do is you can make a mental note for yourself and you say like, okay, you know what? Six months from now, I want to be in a position where I'm closer to being able to say no. Right. And then you still have to do the decision making for yourself. I can't give you that answer, but it's about that pause. And you can apply this to like big to little situations in life, like when you have a friend invite you over for a dinner party and you feel guilty and you know you're kind of trying to decide, or you can apply it to big things in life. You know, like, do I want to take that next promotion? Do I want to switch to a different career? Do I want to go back to grad school? Right. Do I want to have children? Do I want to get married? My patients usually get really mad at me when I take it to those big places because they're just like, geez, Pooja, like, I don't have time to think about those big things. Like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what is for dinner tonight. But it's in those big things that you really, I know it's scary and I know it requires a lot of courage and bravery. But when you do it, that's when you are really kind of stepping into your power. Hmm. It's this idea, which is unfortunately novel for a lot of us, depending on what generation we were raised in, depending on our gender. There's an intersection of so many factors, but this idea of agency over our lives is so powerful that everything is not just happening to us. We have some ownership and how we respond, how quickly we respond to your really good example, what that looks like now, what we'd like it to look like in six months. Just We have a lot of power as opposed to just default setting all the time. I'd love to hear you talk about, and this could be touching down on any of the sort of four general principles of self-care, be it compassion or power or boundaries or values, but knowing that no two lived experiences are identical, of course, and there's so many factors included in any given life or set of circumstances. Are you able to, even then, based on your personal experience and your experience as a clinician, identify some of the key barriers that generally keep us from accessing like the core of each of those places? What what keeps us on the periphery primarily of that really powerful internal set of processes and just kind of always peeking in the window? I have two immediate kind of words that come to mind. So the first is guilt. Guilt is just there all the time when it comes to boundaries and when it comes to compassion too, how we talk to ourselves. It's, I mean, I see it every day in my practice. I experience it too, especially in my role as a mother. I have a toddler. And so like literally this morning, uh, something happened at drop-off and he goes to daycare. And I was like, oh my God. Like the mom guilt was just there immediately. Oh, if I, I spent too much time on my book launch this year. And because of that, X, Y, Z, right? Like, I just want everybody who's listening to know like I'm the expert in this and I feel it too. (laughs) But what I say, and I use this myself, I say to my patients is, 
the guilt isn't yours. It's coming from the outside. It's coming from the patriarchy. It's coming from these systems of white supremacy. It's coming from all of this external noise that we live in. So I use a metaphor, and this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. I say, think about guilt as like a faulty check engine light on your car dashboard. So like you've taken your car to get service, the oil's changed, everything's good, but there's like that light that just keeps flashing. It doesn't actually give you any meaningful information. It's broken. It's a broken check engine light. That's what guilt is. It's just there in the background. And unfortunately, because we live in a country that has all the problems ours does, you're going to feel guilt. Your job isn't to get rid of it or to prove it wrong. Your job is to just not give it so much power. So you can turn the volume down. You can let it be in the background and not let it control you. Guilt doesn't have to be your moral compass. When you're guided by guilt, you get so far away from yourself. And then you end up in one of these situations where, you know, you have to blow everything up, which is not fun. So guilt, I would say that's number one. But there was another one that came to my mind. So, you know, Brene Brown talks about this. Like, she talks about courage, which I think is so important. And the way that I think about it, or I have been thinking about it lately, is risk-taking. Like, being willing to take a risk whether that's a social risk, whether that's an emotional risk, whether that's a financial risk. And I know, as you just said, everybody has their own life circumstances and there's so many things that impact what type of risk you can take. But I think that like, as a human who is trying to find their way in the world, like allowing yourself to be in a space where like, you don't know the answer. You might choose wrong. You might go down a path that is a little bit winding, but like letting yourself, letting yourself explore and and be curious. I know you talk about curiosity a lot. Like be curious about your internal thoughts, but also be curious about your choices and and like allowing yourself to take some risks. I I think that that I don't know if it fits the frame of barrier, but it it strikes me as something that is really important as a quality to cultivate. I love that. I would say in general, most of us are risk averse, just period. Yeah. Which is adaptive, right? Like, right? Like we want to be safe, right? It's not that it's a bad thing. Totally. (laughs) Totally. But my subculture, my community tends to reward certainty. Like I'm sure I've got it. I'm positive. I'm super crystal clear on this, or it's guaranteed to some factor or to some level. And so I don't find risk as celebrated in a community of women like it should be. It carries this connotation of being careless or cavalier, you know, with real world circumstances. And that's not true either. That's not true either. I I like how you aligned it with the idea of curiosity. I, I see those two things more together. And so for me, sometimes the risk is just simply not knowing exactly what the outcome is going to be. Like, well, let's see. Let's let's go down this path and see what happens. And and it's generally something really meaningful and powerful, something that to grow from. I'd love to hear you talk as we kind of get close to land in the plane here on some of the tangible ways 
we've discussed a lot of factors that both inform how we feel about ourselves and our place in the world, and then also what sometimes keep us from from steering into the curve of of true wellness. And so I wonder if we could bring it down to the ground with a couple of brass tacks ideas. Like if this is a journey that a listener is going, I, yeah, I want to like hang up the like life changing face cream for something way deeper, way more meaningful, way more lasting. What would be for your suggestion? A handful of maybe pragmatic steps to say, maybe just start here or questions to ask, whatever it might look like. A couple things come to mind. So when we're talking about compassion, right? We've talked a little bit about boundaries, talking about compassion. We're really talking about sort of like, how do we interact with ourselves? Like, what is the internal monologue? So for anybody who's listening, who wants to start asking themselves more questions and also who wants to work on being kind to themselves, I would ask you to think about where in your life are you terrified of being called selfish? And where in your life are you exalting selflessness? Because usually what I see is we kind of ping pong back and forth between those things when the reality is that there's a middle ground. And and in real self-care, I call it good enough right? Like there's a middle ground of good enough. Like as I know I I use motherhood as an example, my practice is focused on women's mental health. So a lot of my patients are pregnant or postpartum. But what I see is a lot of moms who you feel like you're managing your family, but you're not actually part of your family because you're constantly in your head being worried about this selfishness or needing to be selfless. So asking yourself, what would good enough be? And how do I kind of think about the decisions that I'm making from that place instead of a place of fear of being selfish? In real self-care, I have a lot of different exercises, but because I strongly believe that this is something that has to come from you, most of the exercises are, are really just like questions to ask yourself, different types of questions. One of my favorite ones that folks that you can really hang your hat on, I think, is this exercise that I describe in the book. And, and I know it sounds a little bit silly, but I'll say that when it comes to values, actually, it works a lot better to be silly because if we're too serious, like your judging brain comes in and tells you that you're doing it wrong. So we actually need to be silly when it comes to values. So this is a dinner party exercise. Imagine you have $200 to throw a dinner party. What's your dinner party going to look like? You know, Is it going to be outside in a field? Are you going to ask your friend who plays in a band to come play? Is it going to be a potluck? where everybody brings a different dish from the last country they visited? Or is it like you're seeing this immaculate table setting, right? And you are already starting to think about the linens and the colors. It's really easy in that example to understand that every single person's $200 dinner party is going to be different. And there's no one best dinner party, despite what Instagram might tell you. I promise you, there's no one best. It's what you want, what makes you excited. So if you kind of like let your brain sort of fantasize there, then what you do is you pull out some of the adjectives and the adverbs that stand out to you. So maybe in the example of the person who was like thinking about the linen, beauty, aesthetics, right? Or maybe the person who wants folks to be out and dancing, 
like physicality, embodiment, movement. Maybe if you were the person that, you know, thought about the potluck, it's, it's like culture, diversity, right? And if you notice, all of those are adjectives and adverbs. So it doesn't work if you say, well, I just, I value my family because that's, that's not a value. Everybody values their family. Like that is not helpful. <laughs> We're trying to pull out these like deeper, seemingly like you might say like extraneous words, but that's actually, those are the values. And then you can apply that to your like self-care. You can think about like, how do I bring more beauty to what I'm doing? How do I bring more connection? And you can then even apply that to your big life decisions as well. I mean, I think that's like the 400 level, but if we're at the 101 level, it's like, how do I, you know, running is something that I really enjoy, but I've noticed that I've become kind of performative to, this isn't me, I hate running, but I'm just talking about a hypothetical person. Someone likes it. Yeah. Right, somebody out there likes it. I noticed that I'm like tracking all my times on a spreadsheet and it's getting to be burdensome. Okay, like, let me do that dinner party exercise and think of some of those qualities and adjectives. And then how do I bring that to running? Maybe I actually want to join a running group and be with other people because I need more of a social element. That's a really like kind of here and now way to bring it into the activities that you might already be doing, but you want to change the quality of how you come to them. I see. Oh, I love that. I really like how you framed it because asking the question, even the question, what kind of dinner party would I throw for $200? It like my brain immediately wants to say, well, this is probably the best way to do that. And this way would be probably superior to somebody who picked it in these ways. And that's just simply not true. There's different wonderful things about every approach to life. And so I love the non-judgmental approach to that question and realizing that those values are lovely and can be applied elsewhere. I think that's fantastic. I I want to ask you before I let you go to discuss your community to discuss JAMA. And this is a physician-guided, really like mental health wellness community. Can you talk a little bit about it, how it came to be, what what it means to you, what it means to the community? Yeah. So really, Gemma was born out of me wanting to be able to take this work and have it be accessible to a larger group of people because as i'm sure you know for the love of therapy we all know how hard it is to find a therapist absolutely to get off of a waiting list to find somebody who takes insurance like unfortunately we live in a country where the vast majority of folks are not going to have access to that one-on-one experience and so with gemma what i'm doing is i'm kind of dreaming up how do we take some of this learning and bring it to more people and and have it be evidence-based, right? Because there's a lot of stuff online that really has no grounding in actual evidence or science. And as much as like Instagram is going to sell you like the beige branded pills that are going to cure your anxiety, like, I'm sorry, they're not. <laughs> but, so this is really my, this is my risk, I'll say. This is my risk that I'm taking. I do not have training in being an entrepreneur. I'm I'm figuring it out as I go. And it's, I'm learning a lot. And, and what I'm finding is that women who are coming into the community, whether it's like reading the emails or being on the Zoom calls or things like that, it's, it's really about developing a new language and 
understanding that this is a new type of conversation, right? It's like a new way to think about self-care where I don't have all the answers. You know, nobody has all the answers because they live inside you, right? And there's no one right way. So so we're experimenting with different things like emails. You know, we had a WhatsApp thread. There's lots of different, you know, we're kind of going through different in this experimentation phase. And what's really exciting to me is seeing the ways that as a clinician, that we now in 2023 do live in a world where it's possible to take this and bring it to different spaces. Thank you for that. I, I'm i so grateful that you are spending a portion of your time and energy doing that, bringing that sort of your knowledge base and your experience and expertise to bear on a larger community. Because the truth is for so many, for most people, therapy is a luxury. It's a privilege if we can figure it out, if we can get somewhere, if someone has room for us, if we can either our, our insurance covers it or we can afford to pay for it out of pocket. Like there's so many reasons why people can't access good mental health care. So thank you for doing that. That is so meaningful. Before I ask you the final, final question, and you just talked briefly about you and I just touched down. We just barely touched down on the things that you write about and talk about and care about and lead through. So can you tell my community the best places to find you, to follow you, to get your incredible book, to be in your Zoom calls? What is it, what does it look like to be in the community of the Gemma community? All of it. Yes. Yes. So my book is called Real Self-Care, Crystals, Cleanses, and Bubble Baths Not Included. You can get it in all the places that you buy books. There is an audiobook. So if you like to listen, I actually narrated it, which was a fun experience. And my website is poojalakshman.com. And there's lots of different ways to engage on there. I'm on Instagram at poojalakshman. I have a great email list that I was talking about. So it's called Therapy Takeaway. And it is free. It's on Substack. And it's a way to get, if you like what we're talking about here, get more of it into your life and in your inbox. So I would love to hear from folks. Yeah. Perfect. Everybody, I will round all that up for you. I will have every link all in a row for you. You can follow Pooja everywhere. You can sign up for Substack. You can get her book all. Finally. Okay, I ask every guest this question in every series, a question that I borrowed from an Episcopal priest that I love. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. So this is her question. Answer it however you want. Literally, any kind of answer is delightful and loved. What is saving your life right now? So therapy. Therapy has really saved my life and still is. And, you know, we're talking about for the love of therapy and and I think mental health professionals, it's still a little bit taboo for us to talk about our own work that we do on ourselves. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that my therapist is actually retiring at the end. She's in her 70s. Like she, you know, deserves to retire. But I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Totally. <laughs> but that you know, you mentioned, you talked about Jen about how like therapy is this like cozy little corner where you can be with yourself and be curious. And that is exactly what I've experienced it as too. It's like, it's really this gift. It's this gift. And I know what it is, can be a luxury, right? And I know that. And you don't have to be in crisis 
to go there. Like you're allowed to make the space and have it. And, and it has absolutely saved me. It has, it's helped me take risks that I don't think I would have been able to take without it and to really understand how to take those risks. So, so yeah, that's my answer. Such a great answer. Therapy has meant so much to me too. Just a, a an invaluable tool. And I, I wish that I would have had the wisdom and even the self-permission to do therapy before I was in crisis. Who knows what could have happened had I really taken better care of all of the things that you mentioned. I'll never know. And so thank you for that good piece of advice. And thank you for being on the show today. I am so grateful for everything you said. Everything you said was so relatable and felt so true to life and true to form. And so I'm so grateful that this conversation is changing in the way that it is. I'm so grateful. I've got a, I have a 23-year-old daughter. I have a 17-year-old daughter. They are just growing up in a different narrative and it's better and it's stronger and it's more empowering. And, and it's because voices like yours are out in the zeitgeist with your megaphone saying there is a different way to think about these things. There's a different way to, to approach self-care like this. I'm just so happy. I'm so happy for the next generation to, to be growing up under leadership like yours. And so thank you for all that you do and for being on the show today. I'm just proud of you and learning a lot from you and thankful that you're here. Thank you so much, Jen. As mentioned, head over to jenhatmaker.com and I'll round up all this information for you. There's absolutely no reason for you not to sign up for Pooja's Substack. Follow her on socials, obviously. This is the voice of wisdom that we need in our lives. So if we are looking to actively counter this constant narrative that we are receiving, this is how we do it. These are like tangible, practical steps. Let's let's begin to fill our feeds with what genuine self-care looks like, what it looks like to nurture our souls and our bodies in a real way. And so I am... So grateful she was on the show today. Thank you for listening, guys. I hope this series is serving you as well as it is serving me. Every one of these conversations, I'm really walking away with profound insights, and I hope that you are too, and there's more to come. So if you haven't already subscribed to the show, do it, and this will just show up for you in your little phone, in your little AirPods, without you even trying for it, because we have some incredible guests still lined up and more to come. All right, you guys, see you next week. 